Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, you guys have heard me talk a bit about the first annual Fraudology Benchmarking Survey over the last, oh, I don't know, nine, ten months. And I mean, there's so many things and you'll hear a little bit. We were hoping it would be ready in March and then it was May. And now it, you know, we're towards the end of June and it is very close to being published. But I don't think I am over exaggerating when I say that it is worth the wait. And a big reason why it's worth the wait is because I had a secret weapon in getting this done. While the while the survey is by Fraudology and sponsored by Forder, Fraudology is really just me. And so in this case, Fraudology was not just me. It was me and the great and talented writer, Shoshana Marini. <laughs> I have asked to join me today to talk about some of the results of this survey that we were really excited about and that we are really, we're pleased with. So Shoshana, welcome back to Fraudology and thank you again for being my secret weapon and my partner in anti-crime for this giant project. <laughs> It's great to be back. I think this is the first time I've been described as anyone's secret weapon, but I'm, I'm definitely up for putting that on my business cards now. Oh, maybe to your face, but I'm pretty sure you've been called that. <laughs> I, I your clients and back to me. I think I've heard it before. So maybe just... I think if, your, we're, no. if we're thanking people, though, I, I want to like throw it back on the, the fraud fighting community because I've mm. been really like heartened and impressed and happy to see the kind of response that we got for filling in the survey because obviously it was a concern back in the beginning and we spent a lot of time talking about how to make sure we had a really good sample set of the right people yeah. from the right companies so that it would actually be useful and mm. those people are really busy and yeah. they held a lot of sensitive information in their heads and people were really willing to give their time and their knowledge to help create benchmarking data that everyone could use and trust that was really, really nice to see. So thank you, everybody. Yeah, I agree. I mean, 100%, right? Like we're we're the messengers. We're the ones that were in a position to be able to try to, you know, get our arms around this industry and just say, hey, we just want a few things that we can say, this is where we are. And this is, you know, that way, because how can you get to the next stop if you don't know where you are now? And, you know, I was telling you before we were recording that I've been in the room with several different executive leadership groups for large companies. And always when I'm presenting their, you know, assessment on fraud, they want to know well, where where do we stand with our competitors? Right. And it's very natural. Yeah. How the problem is how you're doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You need to know, right? And because fraud is not something that's talked about, you know, in it and it's behind the scenes. It's not like we can say, oh, okay, well, we can see the or we can track or there's public data on how well our competitor is doing at marketing spend or upper optimization or other pieces of, you know, or innovation, those types of things. Fraud is behind the scenes. And so it's been very squishy. And you know, we'll get into it in just a minute, but there have been other surveys. But I know from my own experiences that 
they haven't been reliable and they haven't, they've been really hard for fraud fighters to know how to use them in the right way because they're also not asking the questions that they really need to know and that they want to know. So really this was an exercise in you and I both taking the lists of questions that we receive on a fairly regular basis and saying, how can we quantify the answers to these? I do want to boast before we start out that although we started out with a list of nearly, I think, 200 questions, we did (laughs) narrow it down to a very reasonable number. I don't know if a survey company would would say that it was reasonable. She still wanted it down to, you know, like 20 questions. She was was amazing with us. I'm so glad we got professionals to deal with that. Yes. Yes, I agree. And I'm like, I don't understand. I'm representing the rest of, yeah. So we'll get into all of that in a minute. And I think Just because you brought it up, I think we should boast about this. I mean, I don't know of any other survey that has had this many, not only respondents, but qualified where we can act, we can say with very great certainty that the people who answered these surveys are the leaders, you know, who are responsible for fraud for e-commerce companies and, you know, that they are the right people to be answering these questions. And we got close to 500 responses, which when I have told people that, like especially like other solution providers who, you know, I mentioned like, oh, I'm so excited for the survey to come out. Well, how many people did you have answer it? And usually, I mean, I remember this from the days when I worked for the trade association. If we had more than 100 people answer a survey, that was considered a really good sample set because it is hard to ask for that That's time. That's cute. Yeah. But like, no, we did, like this was the fraud fighting one. Like that, you're going to get the hard questions from the people who read the survey. They need well, to know they can actually trust it. Like that these uh, are people who will ask, where does the data come from? Yes. How many people? Is it a reasonable sample size? Which people? How many yes. people did you get from the same company? The answer is one. By the way, yep. one per company That's only, one per and company. only the leaders yes. for reasons we will discuss. That was actually one of the very few things we didn't have to really think through and argue through at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, are we going to make this public and promote it for filling in? Mm-hmm. No, no, we're not. We're going to be really, really, really specific about who we asked to fill it in. Thank you, and, everybody. We love you. Yeah. You're amazing. <laughs> I mean, and honestly, it, it is though, like, I, I often joke that I'm in awe of the people who, you know, are given a, a task and they can instantly think of the shortest way to, to do it and the quickest way while we'll, we'll still, you know, just the most effective way. For mm, me, I'm give the it, opposite. Give task to a lazy person. Constantly. Yes. yes. I am constantly like, no, 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 the hardest way. But, and this is why it was so good, you know, working with you as well as, you know, and with, you know, the representative from Forder really being a good kind of gut check as well while they, you know, agreed by contract that they didn't have any veto power or anything like that, they were really helpful to say, hey, are we thinking about this in the right way? Or is this the right thing? Because they've done several of these in other in other industries as well as this industry. So I found that really helpful yeah. with the phrasing. Like, too, yes. We've written it this way. <laughs> Does this also, what, when you read this question, what do you think it means? Because well, like, I know we, were, we knew we were going to ask a large group of merchants afterwards to check everything through yes. but you, you only yes. get one shot at that right. so you need somebody before that where you can be like oh you're the dress rehearsal what do you think this yes week? right well yeah the and is but it was worth it 100 percent. and so like you bring up such a good point that like because this audience are fraud biters like we don't just trust data on the surface it's always you know we need to understand how it was determined who was involved like all the details in order to know that we can trust it right so because of that the first part of this episode we just kind of wanted to touch on you know sharing the inner workings of the survey and the decisions that were made to ensure the data could be trusted and we touched on a little bit of them but just kind of going through it a little bit and that the data set 
pilots were large enough to rely on. This might seem boring to some people, but if you're a fraud fighter, you will want to know this because when our hope and the biggest purpose and the filter that we ran, you know, to get down from 200 to 30 questions, et cetera, was, is this going to help them do their jobs better and make decisions, you know, for make the right decisions for their company? And two, are they going to be able to, is this going to help them explain their, the industry, explain the benchmarking to their leadership, you know, and where they should be or where they are now? Those were our two biggest goals. And so any question it was like, well, the answer, is it going to do that or that? And so if you're going to be, you know, providing these to your leadership and saying, hey, we're in the 60th percentile for approval rates, but we're in the 30th percentile for chargebacks or whatever that is, we want you to be when your leadership says, well, how is this determined? Well, were there companies like ours? Are they the same size? You know, who was asked? How do you know it was asked? That's why this part is so important too. We've tried really hard to make the write-up of the survey actionable. Mm. Yes. Because yes. I think sometimes like some some reports, you end up with a lot of data and that mm-hmm. that is great, but it's asking a lot of the person reading it. And right. we really want this to be actually something that you can use day to day. So there are takeaway sections with advice about how to use it or what to note. And mm-hmm. we have like fraudology hot takes in some places, which is like Carice giving extra context and why this is more important than you think it is or the mm-hmm. things that you probably didn't join the dots up with with that other part of the survey, which actually is also relevant here. So yeah, examples and explanations so that this is something that you use. We yes. Have. Yeah. I mean, a lot of time and effort went into this. I mean, a lot of, you know, money on Frizend as well for trusting us. I cannot thank them enough for that. You know, and but just butting out most of the time. Also really great thing, yeah. you know, like underestimated at a company. I yeah, <laughs> I I was hmm, because of my, you know, my history working for other organizations. And this is the first big survey that like Prology or Charge Lakes or really I have my name on too, which is a big deal and kind of scary for me in some ways. But I have worked on many surveys behind the scenes, often in a limited role because I was told, not because I wanted to work on it in a limited role, but because I was told I had a limited role. And so I've seen a lot of the decisions made and how they impact the outcome and how those outcomes can't be trusted in the end because, you know, corners were cut. Or because the sponsor, you know, vendor wants to ask the questions that they want to know, not necessarily the the answers that are going to help the readers or the audience do their job better. And we had so, the opposite problem. Fools were completely hands off and like they were the phone a friend that we used and we like, okay, we, we need this. Right? And we, and we had, instead of cutting corners, we were like, oh, we accidentally included that entire woodland glade that was on the edge of the field. And now there's, it's a much larger space. And so now we're not sure how to make this reasonable again. It's true. Yeah. The the CMO at Forder, Scott Buchanan, I cannot say enough good things about him and really appreciate him. And, and, you know, to his credit, when he first reached out to me and said, hey, I you know, heard you mention on the podcast that you'd love to have a benchmarking survey. Is that something we could sponsor? I was kind of hard on him because I had seen how other companies have sponsored surveys before. And I was like, well, yes, I will take your money, but, and then here are all the rules for that, right? And instead of the other way around. And so I think because of that, he was, yeah, he was funny. And we actually had to keep asking him, like, please, can you help? And he was happy to. It was just, he was respecting that. And that was not something I was expecting from any company, but especially one that is well-known in our industry for, you know, just because sometimes maybe a startup would be more accommodating, but that's, you know, a whole other thing. 
But just, you know, one other thing, we know there are other surveys, but like I said, we wanted this to be entirely unimpacted by vendor priorities with a completely broad pool of respondents, like across the industry, across sizes, by annual revenue, types of fraud attacks. Like we wanted it to be as comprehensive as possible. And if you haven't picked it up on it already, I think that the theme word of this project was intention. We were probably overly intentional and and tried. To we do were. We were definitely too much. Probably. We're like we way overthought everything. But it, but it was you know it was good. Right. It, was, it was fun. Okay. And this way, at the end of the process, admittedly slightly later than we were intending, but at the end of the process, you could be like, yes, this is the one. This is actually right. the survey. This is the results. You could use this. Yes, this is reliable. That's what I was just so, like, say. It's worth it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even we when are horrible. I... We are terrible people this way, but it was worth it. I mean, I yeah. I am a horrible business person, too, because if I calculated out the hourly rate, it would not be, you know, what what anyone, you know, but that's not that's not the point. Right. This wasn't the that wasn't the point for either one of us. The it results was, were gold. That was like 100 yeah, percent. That was the aim. We know how okay, much. Let, let's run through the, the graphics. Oh my gosh, you're so right. We yeah, have like yeah, absolutely. You're right. So first, I just wanted to clarify the rules. So Sean mm. and I made up fraudology. So when I say fraudology, it's both of us. We wrote the questions. We sought feedback from top e-commerce fraud leaders who we cannot thank enough and we wish we could name you. Then we rewrote the questions. And then, you know, we all, all those things. Forder had worked with channel market research before and had been really impressed with how just the results they had had with some of the yeah. things they had done before. They were stellar. And, they and were... also extremely patient. Thank you, people. Thank you very, very yeah. much. Yes. But also like incredibly Especially professional I, and, and practical yeah. and pragmatic about everything. Yes. Yeah. I, I 100% know that, you know, fraud people annoy the crap out of other people that think differently and i was definitely that person for this you know we also had a group of merchants though they were like oh okay that yes this this the question but now we need to include the formula for this because not everybody calculates this in the same way and are we talking Mm -hmm. about pre-bank authorization or post right and and that's really important because of yeah no you're right you're right Right. we're gonna have to rewrite that now well yeah and And then we're gonna have to add an explanation because not everyone's gonna understand what we're talking about anyway we're all fine you'll see from the results that it did all get baked in in a way that it's hopefully comprehensive to everyone reading it. Well, yeah. And so we do just want to like absolutely thank everyone who took the time to fill it out. I mean, so Channel Market Research performed the survey and it was a triple blind, which we'll go into in a minute, with over 400 participants. And then almost a hundred of you, fraudology listeners and e-commerce leaders, took the time and it was, you know, 20, 30 minutes, which is not, I mean, nobody has extra time to fill this out through a separate link to, you know, be able to help us see, you know, if there were any, we wanted to kind of almost have a control group. And Shoshana said, because we sent it out to people and we did not make this link public, that's why we were able to have such confidence that the right people filled this out for the right companies and that it's all, you know, strategically relevant. And that's why we were able to have it be triple blind so people could feel comfortable filling it out and knowing that we couldn't reverse engineer it. So, you know, channel research did the all the statistical analysis and cross tabulations. So we know that we can really trust it. And then Shoshana and I read through all the results and wrote the report. Porter paid for the sponsorship for Fraudology and for channel research to perform the survey. And their design team is currently working hard to make the report look great and be easy to read through. So this was, when I say it's a team effort, like it was a massive team effort, including all of you who took time to fill it out. And if you didn't fill it out, but you're going to take time to read it, that's 
really helpful too. Because if we, I mean, the amount of hours that, you know, and our families, I think are both very happy that we're done with this too. Like I, the amount of hours we put into it, like it wouldn't, it's not going to have as much value if you don't, you know, use it and read it and learn from it. So And everyone. preferably also give us feedback on it. But yes. Oh my gosh. We yes. see this in, in the report. Like it would be great yeah. to know how you're using it and yes. what reactions you get and in what ways it comes in handy. And what other so questions do you wish we would have asked, right? Like, yes, we want this to be an annual survey. We hope that, you know, Forder will trust us again and not be like, oh my goodness, you crazy ladies. But, you know, and that they'll want to do it again. If not, we may on the lookout for someone else, but we'd really hope that they want to work, do this again. And we want to just improve it. We know it was our first take. We did think we feel like we thought through almost everything. We feel like we got, you know, input from the industry and everything else. But in it, I'm sure at some point, like when I, you know, provided the results, early results to a group of about 50 or 60 people at the Merchant Risk Council event, it was that was also invite only. But I was able to really go, hey, I can stand up against that, you know, get yeah, this. But there was one question that they had questions on that. I was like, oh my gosh, I thought that we thought, I don't really, I mean, I think I know, but I don't know. They were like, is it I this still or feel good that? about a reading I used that, to, right. but after me, yeah. I would nonetheless specify. In, in Right. Basically, this one is, you know, when they say it takes a village, this is like <laughs> the village fraud survey. So, right. like, right. So yes, it, we are village made it, a lot. Right. And also, you know, help us make it better, like this yes. one better next time. And also, you know, like anything else that Carice writes about it or talks about afterwards, like, mm -hmm. you know, if you can help make this more useful for anybody, go for it. Yes. Yes. And I know this is a long preamble, but we wanted to make sure that you guys felt like, okay, we can trust this data so that when you're hearing the results and there's going to be some surprises. Right. That is what the yeah. things were surprising <sighs> to us. Yeah. And will be to you. But there was some also that like backed up our assumptions and our intuition. And I think that I feel a lot really of good about those. Like, I agree. Yeah. It's really good to have that data. Yeah. Like, yeah so I speaking so. of that. Yes. And, and those are the, those ones that we have data to back up. Now, when we're talking to our leadership, we're not talking to them in a, from a place of our intuition. We're pretty right. sure this is right. It's right. No, here's the data. And that helps get budgets raised. That that gets things done. That's why we wanted this out in the world. also something so we talk about in the survey. Yes. Okay. But let's start with the surprises because it was fun. Oh, I know. Yes. But before that, I think we do need to go into demographic context. See, look at us like trying to, I yeah. like how the it, 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 so? Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to see. Yeah. We did one response. Okay. Everyone. In, so all of these 500 companies, they're all e-commerce marketplaces, consumer-focused fintechs, range of experience and backgrounds. They're all and fraud, risk, abuse, trust and safety people. These are all yes. your folks. Senior roles, genuinely not because we value the contribution of fraud analysts any less. We just needed the responses that reflected a broad understanding of the fraud right. prevention situation in the companies. And that, you know, that just- The 10,000 votes of roles. each company. Yes, right, right. One respondent from any given company, wide range of industries. We have both e-commerce and mobile. So yes, assuming that you are like- based as well as website-based. Like, yes, right. International, although we do skew towards the US, but the, that right. demographic information is also in there. So, you know, go mm -hmm. for it. And you'll see it also represented in things like, you know, if there's a 3DS mentioned, you'll see that there's that skew that yes. comes naturally with the demographics. And we made sure also size of company and fraud solutions used were also very broad. Mm -hmm. So no unintentional biases there. Right. Yeah. Oftentimes when, you know, and it, it is unintentional bias, but oftentimes when a solution provider, you know, not only sponsors the survey, but performs it, whether the right, you know, whatever that consists of, whether it's the writing or whatever, it's not always typical that there be three parties involved of a survey like with this one. And that was done very intentionally, right? I'm really good at this, but I'm not so great at that. 
and wanting it to be great. But unfortunately, what can sometimes happen is if a vendor is the one that's performing the survey, well, then most of the time, the people who are answering that survey, the people whose email addresses they have or the people who will respond or open an email from them are their customers. So sometimes it's a total unintentional bias. But we know now more than ever, and if you've listened to even one-tenth of the episodes of Fraudology in the last few months, you know this, more than ever, the type of solution that is used is going to very much impact the rates and the metrics and the performance of your fraud prevention strategy. It's a combination of you know the vendor you rely on as well as the leadership at your company and how the team is operationalized and all of that, but that's a huge one. And so we did not ask what specific providers were being used. We did not ask for names. We did ask for types in some places, but because of the way that it was circumvented because, you know, a third party was the one reaching out to, you know, 400 merchants. And then I reached out, well, my team reached out to about a hundred. We know that it's across lots of different, not just across different vendors, but different ways of using those vendors and everything else. So you're absolutely right. And then do you want to talk about the anonymous part and then we'll dive into the surprises? Yes. So the anonymity was really important because Mm -hmm. we know that, I mean, in general, it was just important to us to get good results and for everyone to be comfortable, but also specifically because we're asking for for like fairly sensitive data, honestly, Mm -hmm. like especially when you start talking about compensation, this is something that people typically don't share that easily. Yes, we did ask about salary and compensation. Yes, we did. We need to talk about it. (laughs) And everybody answered. That blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. We made it like, you know, right. it, it would have been easy to say, you know what, I like you would rather not say. say. And mm-hmm. no, people are really genuinely willing to share because they know that they're helping other people and that this is the best way that they'll get the results that they need as well. Like right. people, people yeah. this was a very heartening experience for me. So like I, I very, very much appreciate that that aspect Almost of it. Yeah, from your faith in humanity, maybe a tiny bit. Not I mean, all you, you, we all really need that, right? Because if you work in this industry for long enough, you start yes. thinking terrible things about most of the population of the world. So yeah, triple blind system, no way to reverse engineer the responses to identify the respondent. So we'd have lots of confidence about the quality of the responses, but absolutely no information at all about who gave any particular response. The only time I know who actually, like there are a few companies that I know did fill out the survey. I don't know which one is theirs, but I know they did. And the only reason why is because they replied to me when I... They WhatsApped you a really smug. Look, I did it. I did it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. They told me they did it. And I was so grateful. So they told me, right? It wasn't, we did not ask for emails. You know, sometimes we did want, you know, to, we talked about this a lot, right? Like we want to to give them so the gratitude, you know, and like some surveys do a drawing at the end or something like that. But if we did that, then we would have the email addresses and we would be able to reverse engineer. And while there was one spot off of the survey, once the survey was done, people who filled it out could say that they wanted a copy of it when it was done. But that was actually kept in a complete, we, I mean, like I said, when it was I siloed, say like completely, was, completely, yes, completely when I say Porter was patient yeah. with us, they had to create a whole new process to silo that information. So it did not register anyone for their marketing emails or get on their set or anything like that. Right. Um, and that wasn't even connected to the survey. That was like a just no. a total extra thing related to the yep. dissemination afterwards. Right. So we yes, couldn't have... Intentional was really the, the byword here. Great. 
<laughs> and but now I'm grateful because like now we're about to talk about things that I still find surprising. And at least I can 100%. be like, okay, I'm surprised, but I nonetheless feel confident in it. But I feel right, but I feel confident about it. And I think that the, you know, the things that didn't surprise us helped us go, oh, okay, well, that was, you know, yeah, I'm not surprised. And this one went, oh, you know, mm. actually, and I think there's this phrase I've used a few times on the podcast and it's used a lot in the U.S. at least when talking about, you know, different political things. People will say it's shocking, but not surprising. And I mm. think that one of these things that we're about to talk about and that we, you know, feel like were surprises to us when we really got into it, like granular and you and I started talking about it, it was like, oh, yeah, so you're right. It, it made sense. Right. And so but there was but, value. Yeah. And it may not surprise you guys, right? But Shoshana and I thought that we would share what surprised us as two observers and, you know, academics of this industry in a way. That's so what was your yeah, what was your first surprise? So mm. my first one, yes. I feel like people who listen to the podcast regularly have a lot of context on this. So this will be kind of less surprising. Mm. But when well, now, we first looked at the results, what were we, three months ago? Whatever this was. Mm -hmm. yep. I was really blown away by it. Guys, mm -hmm. false positives. It's a problem. Please, let's start talking about this more and actually trying to do more with it. We can't spend too much time on this now because there are amazing episodes. If you like scroll back in your whichever podcast player you're using, there are very recent episodes on false positives. I recommend you listen to all of them. Yeah. But yeah, only 57% of respondents report that they calculate their company's false positive rate. They this measure not at all. That they, you know, and yeah. And as I talk about, so there was a, you know, kind of a trilogy of episodes that were about two weeks ago from when this podcast is coming out, two or three weeks ago. And they were, you know, I did that because of this survey, because I was like, oh my gosh. And yeah, we know that it's hard to, you know, measure something that doesn't ever happen, but it is not impossible. And if you're measuring something, even if you're aware that, okay, that's not going to be 100% correct, it gives you a measurement. And as long as you're measuring that same thing over and over again, it gives you something. And, you know, I also provided in the third episode of that series, some of the ways that companies are learning to do this with technology and being able to do it faster. But I mean, it's really surprising that basically what that tells me is that the 43% of people who don't calculate their company's false positives have 100% faith in the systems and the tools and the processes and the people in their fraud organization that 100% of the time they're making the right decision. 100% that's what surprised me the most because like fraud fighters are so good at asking the hard questions. Like they're they so good at being like, there's something weird here. Like my, you know, yeah. My spidey senses are tingling. There's something like, this is weird. There's something in this transactional. There's something in, in the behavioral patterns that we're seeing. This spike is, it looks like it could be similar to this, but actually I think there's something wrong. They're really, really good at chasing that instinct. And yet 43% of respondents like, no, well, false positive, it's fine. Well, you know, we, we, we don't need to. It's, it's so, either it's so difficult to calculate, right. which admittedly yeah. it's, it's very hard, that we don't need, that we just can't even start, or we're so confident that we've decided we just don't need to. And in either mm -hmm. case, that's just not a fraud fighting mentality. No. There is no, no it's right. so hard that we're not going to do it. That, but you never ever hear that. In what other context do you no. hear that? In the fraud fighting industry. But, but oh, I it's a challenge. Amazing. Right. But I think you touched on something really smart, right? We love a challenge when it comes to finding fraud. When it comes to, oh my gosh, we yeah. missed this fraud. Look at the chargeback. That's going to show us the fraud we missed. We're going to integrate it into our, you know, our models or our rules or whatever it is. We want to keep getting better there. But because there isn't a natural feedback loop for mm, false positives, yeah. we just kind of want to assume. Because it's the one that got away. Well, yeah, that. And also we're not 
called, I mean, and maybe we should be, I, I can argue for this, but we're not called, you know, revenue generating, right? It's fraud prevention. So that's our true purpose. For okay, preventing then, the so th- this, the, this is the next thing I want to talk about, yeah. which I also found surprising and which is very, very closely linked. Yes. Approval rates. I, okay, it clearly, it is the second most important metric to fraud teams and by some margin. And that is not the surprise. Everybody would have expected that to be the case. Obviously, chargebacks are first and equally, obviously, approval rates are second. And before you go into this, I just want to double, double, triple check that we're all on the same level. So there's a difference between your bank authorization rate and your transaction approval rate. Both are important. Both are things that you can actually improve. But one, but you're approving, you're improving them in two different ways. So your bank authorization rate, that is the issuing banks saying declined or authorized. We're talking about all the transactions at the bank. Well, and this is if you're post off, but just for, you know, which Bill and I talked about in last week's episode, I highly recommend because there's such a weird debate going on right now. And I know why, but that's we're not going to go into it more. But, you know, pre-auth versus post-auth, et cetera. But just saying if we're just for these intents, for this intents and purposes, your bank has already said declined, authorized, et cetera. And you're just looking at the orders that you as a company are saying, okay, we don't think that these are fraud. We're going to pass them. I mean, granted that that, you know, typically for a healthy organization is in the high 90s. Going to vary a little bit based on a lot of factors, including your vertical and risk and all that. But it's typically in the high 90s that because that's the number that you are approving, right? That's the percentage of transactions that come through over which you have control. Yes, you have right. control. Over the not most. the ones that, that the bank is going you know, to like, we'll already post that. Not exactly right, right? But this is your this is how your fraud tool is performing, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, we are, and, bef- and can, please, nobody call us out of this. Yes, we are aware that the bank does perform fraud check and that you lose a number mm. of transactions to that. Yes, you yes, can improve it. That's right. that, we right. know that that's a thing. It, we decided because this was very much focused within marketplaces and e-commerce and so on, that we were not going to look at the banking side of things for this. Because if we so also know- this is, it's, yeah, it, it's different. It's complicated. And there are lots of things that you can do to help yourselves improve yes. on that end. But that wasn't the purpose of this survey. So 100%. this is postal. That's what I wanted to just really, really yes. hammer home right before you say this number. And this is something that I talked about on the episode about false positives too. I was like, you guys, when you hear this, you know, this information about approval rates, like you're going to understand why I decided to reserve three episodes to talk about false positives. Because, you know, we can talk all day about how your fraud practice, right? The whole, the... The combination of the system that you use, the strategy, the you know, process, the people, etc. All of it is about preventing fraud, yes, but it should be preventing fraud while also ensuring that you are approving as many transactions as possible for good customers. You're not pissing off good customers and referring them to your competitors. So Shoshana, now that I feel like we've had the equivalent of a drum roll, what was the rate of a long drum roll? Because it was me as <laughs> what was the uh, metric that really surprised you around approval rates of what, you know, merchants are approving? Yeah. And, and you know, the Delta being the one, the amount that they're declining because they think they're all fraud. Okay. 21% of respondent organizations, I'm reading this out because I'm going to get it completely right, have mm-hmm. an approval rate below 86% post <laughs> authorization post bank authorization this is and a further 10% Not fall into nine. the 86 to 89.9% bracket <laughs> i okay look we've been talking about this in the industry for a long time now and mm-hmm. i know many many companies have worked 
hard on this, especially over the last five years, to yeah. shift from total focus on chargebacks, which obviously was the point initially of the department, to being more on the side of revenue generation and finding the right balance. And most teams find that the challenge of finding the perfect balance between chargeback prevention and high approval rates is like the best, most interesting, most challenging part of the job. But 21%. Below 86%. One in five. Guys. Yeah, they're saying that, they're basically saying that they cancel 14% of their transactions because they think that they're fraud. And I've I been mean, that customer. And now well, I know why I've been that customer so many times. Right. Yes, we've all been that customer. You're right. And sometimes we're that customer a lot because of this. Well, yeah. And that's the thing is like, we're not talking, you know, maybe once every few years, right? You might have a really, really strong attack and you might, you know, might get down to 86% approval. But that should not be on a rolling basis. This was yeah. an annual average. And I know of a few fraud providers who have essentially gaslit their merchants to be like, this is industry average. It it's is not. not. It is not the industry average. If they're telling you that, please talk to your peers. Yes. That oh they're gosh. really, that we, we could all do better on this. I like, yes, it, some industries with higher risk, obviously you're going to have lower approval rates. Your average Wait. will be different to everybody else's average. Sure, but, this, but... This, we're looking at a wide range of industries and yes, balance is hard. Yes, there are persistent faltering sometimes. You may have a bad quarter. Yes, different quarters, are, you know, have their, their complexities if you're looking at holidays and sales and whatever. Mm -hmm. none, none of that is enough to explain 21% have an approval rate below 86%. Well, yeah, and 10% uh, uh, being, you know, below, and below, below, you know, 80%. Or like, yeah, but yeah. And, I, and below this the, also, it's okay, this is important context. A majority of the largest companies that we have in the survey, mm. they do not only have approval rates, which are in the high 90s, they also have some of the lowest chargeback rates. Yes. That means the more you're investing, and I know that I know the huge companies can invest far more. I know it's a different level, mm -hmm. but it means if you are investing and are taking it really seriously, you get a completely Capable. different level of result. Yes. And that is particularly notable because the smaller companies, like on the other end of the spectrum, if we're you know kind of putting size on the spectrum, they've got pretty impressive results too because they can't afford to miss the pennies. Mm -hmm. There's the guys in the middle who don't, you know, they're not they're not strapped for cash, and they can, but. There's, you know, this is well, hard. They don't know it's like, well, possible. We're okay. We can do or they, Or honestly, I mean, you know, me being the person who, like I said, I kind of feel like an academic in the industry and kind of look at trends and that kind of thing in a different way. I feel like a lot of these people are the same ones, you know, the, the companies who fall under this are the same ones who just, they trust the people who they talk to and they firmly at some point in their brain believe that every fraud solution is the same, that every everything is the same. It, you know, okay, well, this must be, you know, because my fraud solution said this, that must be true, right? That I must have over 14% of my orders be 100% fraud. Well, it's not. And I guarantee it. And I can say that with such a confidence because I am often diving into the, this data for companies that fall in the middle of these between the biggest companies and the smallest companies. And there is always a lot of room for improvement. Even if you are the riskiest vertical and you know all of that, you should not be. I mean, really, honestly, I think the other, the other thing that got me frustrated and I kind of shared it on one of the episodes about false positives was I think that we've somehow some a part of the industry has gone from let's always improve let's always get better let's always you know we never want to have last month's results or you know last quarter's results we always want to improve right we always want to move up on our approvals and down on our chargebacks i think 
too many people have gotten comfortable to just say, well, as long as we stay below this number and above that number, we're okay. And some of that is because of, you know, contractual obligations with solution providers. Others is because, yeah, fighting fraud is exhausting. And maybe we don't, we don't know what we don't know. And we think- It's true. Sometimes it's hard to find the fun again. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. And it's hard to feel like it's possible when, you know, you're, you feel like your company doesn't appreciate what you're doing and all of that. But there, fun fact, we even found out from merchants who do feel appreciated in their company and that their company understands the value of fraud. We found out what is different about them than the this other one. This is my favorite. Surprise. Yes. Which I don't know if we should skip ahead to that. That was just something that oh, I really. So, no, I want to finish this one for, yeah. first. Not yeah, I was just to say in terms of. I mean, there is more. To, there is more to there say is. in terms of results. Please yeah. go to the actual survey and, and download it and read it. Yes. But the and last thing I want to now say. I total revenue, right? So yes. you can look yes. at your peers and you can see the same thing we saw. Wow. The, the biggest companies with the biggest targets on their back are the ones that, you know, actually have the lowest, you know, the best rates, right? And the ones, but you you can be able to compare it to your, to your peers. I feel like we've been quite negative about this so far in the analysis <laughs> because honestly, it was a shock. Yeah. But I think that this is actually also an enormous opportunity for companies because this is a really good argument for why you need more budget. And, you know, you do need a plan why you to might that. Need- do an ROI on new solutions. Sorry, but the biggest common denominator I'm seeing in all my conversations are the solutions that are not innovating, that are not investing in R&D, but that are just telling their merchants, well, this is what it is, or just trust us. And that's, I don't want to keep ragging on the solution providers. I think that they should be our partners. I think that they should want the same things as us. But over the last several years, business decisions have been made that it is there's a higher profit margin when you're not investing in R&D and you're just selling the same product that worked five years ago. The problem is the fraudsters are always innovating. And so, yeah, the budget, you might need to also explain to your leadership. I get it. I get that in other areas of our business, there really isn't that much difference between option A and option B. It's just a couple features, et cetera. There is a huge difference in these and the margins are ginormous. The amount of you know, just even one basis point can be so much for some companies. Which is something you can kind of work out in a rough way with these yeah. numbers. So you that you really can argue for the budget and resources that you need with a plan. I mean, don't just, you know, walk in with, oh, look, we, you know, we have room to improve. You must know, like we, we all know, there are gaps. There are places where you're, you're worried or you're a bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. about it. This is a good time to face those places and think, okay, if I change mm. this, how much more do I think I could change? How much money could I make for the company? And if you're walking in like that, you're in a much stronger position, especially now because yes, budgets are tight and people are worrying about, will I be able to increase? But mm. they're also worrying about how to increase revenue. Right. Or maintain revenue. And if you're able to walk in and say, look, I see a way to increase, you know, X basis points, people are going to be listening to you at the very least, which I think is a great They'll have a stronger appreciation for what you do, right? They'll be like, oh, you're not just looking for the bad guys. You really are trying to help us. And it's not just that customer this one time, right? It's the customer for a lifetime. And so that we see that that's your goal. So now we're going to trust you and we're going to listen to you more when you're saying that you need more things. We cannot just be like, eh. We're okay with whatever it is, you know. There's always a better way to do things. And like you said, John, like people in fraud, usually we are so ingenuitive as far as we're going to find this bad actor if it's the last thing we do. But we don't always do that when it comes to the other side of it. Whether that's, you know, sometimes people just say, well, 
I won't get budget, so I won't try. Well, have you tried this way, right? Have you tried saying, hey, I actually think that there's room for improvement and I'd like to go out and, you know, do a you know live POC or maybe it's a, you know, behind like a, after a post, I can't remember what they call it, but after the fact, and they'll tell you what, how they would have decided and you don't tell them what the outcomes were. I had a great conversation with Neil McCorrig on that from eShop World a few months ago, talking about how you can measure the potential success with a new vendor without doing a live POC, knowing that engineering resources are not always prioritized for us, but just don't accept the status quo. I, I feel like I'm I still you know, using my mom this, voice a lot, but I get so passionate <laughs> about it because I want, I want more for us. I think this is also kind of optimistic in that sense as well, in the sense that if you feel that you're kind of at the mercy of your systems or your technology or your vendor or whatever it is that you feel is holding you back, these numbers kind of indicate that that's not the case. You have a lot mm. more control than you think. It might be hard sometimes, mm. like there there might be some work that might seem intimidating, but it's doable and yes. other people have done it and will probably be really happy to help you work out what to do if you ask them. Well, Again, yeah. based on the fact that we had 500 people reply <laughs> happily to this entire survey. Right. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. Well, right. And that's a really good point, right? Like it shows that it's possible that the biggest companies are doing it. So there is possible. And that's one thing you can go into your leadership and say is, hey, look, we're not in this bracket yet, but we, if we want to be, this is where we need to get our numbers to be, right? There's a reason these companies are some of the biggest and best. And some of those reasons are because they care about these margins. They care about the, the gap between approvals and decline. 
they care about that or approvals and chargebacks, right? They are constantly trying to improve rather than, eh, as long as we stay below this and above that, we're okay. And, you know, yeah, because we know it's possible, that's why we're really calling this out. The other thing that makes me think that this is more possible than maybe you might anticipate is my favorite surprise of, of the survey, which is that visibility within your organization leads to value. I mm-hmm. think this is something we'd kind of ex- sort of suspected this was true, but the extent to which it really is there is very clear from the survey data. And honestly, I was not expecting it to be this dramatic. And it's really great. 66% of departments that invest in educating and communicating with other departments within their organization on how fraud impacts the company, they report being highly valued within the company. And by contrast, this worked out so nicely. It was just like complete mm. luck. 66% of those who never provide that communication, they report feeling not valued at all. Basically, so if people in your company don't understand what you're doing and yeah. how it impacts business, then they're not going to appreciate you. And Basically, the more you yeah. invest in them, the more they'll invest in you. And now there's data for that. It's yeah. really nice. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you said it that we kind of knew it, but I would say that you and I knew it, right? Because we get to talk to so many different merchants and so many different mm, It's true. Like, I'd seen it anecdotally many times. Yes. Oh my gosh, me too. And I'm seeing the data many, many times. And I have been saying for a while, those merchants who take the time to say, to understand what the business cares about, to understand what your leadership cares about, right? Is it conversion? Is it number of accounts? Is it this or that? What's our big goal right now? When you tie fraud to that and you say, hey, we're spending X amount of dollars on our customer acquisition costs. But because we don't have a fraud solution that's giving us as many data points as we need, we're canceling 14% of those. If we are able to invest in a better fraud tool that provides us with more data and has you know, much better results for their, for their customers and their clients than where we are now, we're going to be able to actually like the CAC, the customer acquisition costs that you're spending and that you're investing in are actually going to be worth it, right? You're not spending all this money to get a customer and then we're just canceling them for life, you know? And so that those are the kinds of ways that you can speak to the business. And when you speak to the business, they understand, oh, that's way fun. And then over time, and it doesn't happen overnight, they start bringing you into conversations. They start, you know, asking what you need. And like you said earlier, Shoshana, it's good to know, you know, have that written out. You know, here's here are the things we could do to, you know, get better, to improve. We can add an extra layer or we can change altogether or we can, you know, do more analysis to figure out what we, whatever that is. But yeah, the fact that, you know, and I, one other thing I wanted to say is I spewed this, I, I said this, I said a summary of this to a handful of merchants on a call the other day. And one person said, well, how did you measure appreciation? And I was like, that is a really good question. We did it by how the fraud leader felt. And yeah, maybe that's not as like quantitative as you think, but actually knowing how cynical we can be, the fact that 66% of respondents said that they feel very highly or they highly valued within their means that they actually are, right? I mean, if they weren't, they wouldn't say that. We Also, we all know that this is actually something that's, it's like, how do you know when something's art? How do you know if you like it or not? 
Right. Like, you just know. Like, oh. this is not one of those things people regularly wrong about. Right. Like, no. they feel valued because people listen to them and solicit their opinion. And when they say something, people listen. And when they ask for something, they're given it or it's given very serious yeah. consideration. Right. They are part of the conversation and they're taken seriously and they know it. That, you know, mm. that that's one of these human things that, yes, would probably be quite difficult to measure if you were really trying to measure. But we all know. Like, I, well, I know that I like that piece of art. And this person knows that they feel yeah. appreciated and highly valued in the company. Right. And I think asking them how they feel versus asking other parts of the company how much they value them or, you know, whatever else is actually the right measurement. So it's such a good Because yeah, everyone's, no, no, of course we value fraud. They're very right. important. Otherwise, you know, all the, all the nasty criminals take mm-hmm. our money kind of thing. Like, but really. The way feel day to day. And, yeah. you know, the, for the 66% who, you know, don't feel valued at all. Those are the people who leave and those are the people who are going to leave their company with domain expertise, et cetera. And I think what this highlights is it is within your control, just like what the other piece does, right? Sometimes it is easy for us to feel like things are happening to us. What this survey highlighted to me in a lot of ways, but especially just these two that we talked about now, you know, between the false positives piece and the, you know, all that, right? We're able to show, but, but it's not. Across the board, right? It's not that every single company in every single category has these low percentages. It's that some do and some don't. So it is possible. And in this case, we're saying not only is it possible to feel highly valued in your company, here's what you can do to make it better. And then within the report, I spent quite a bit of time providing a handful of examples, like tactical things that have worked for the people that I know of when I think of who do I know, you know, who are the people or the companies that I know really value their fraud department and what have they done? What has that fraud department done to educate and communicate over time with other departments and their leadership about it? Just to wrap that up, like I think that, you know, we're saying that it's possible there are things to do. And then we provided, like you said earlier, actionable ways to use this data and how to like tactically implement this. So we're not just saying, hey, if you don't feel valued, you're not doing something right. Well, we all know that we're all, we're all starting from zero, right? There's not yet, and this is a big step in getting there, but there isn't yet fully documented best practices in our industry. So this is this survey is a very big start to that. That is also something I took from the survey in like for, in a number of ways, like the, the diversity of the departments that the fraud team reports into and where the budget comes from and Ah, salary and like so much stuff in the survey screams this is still a maturing industry it's still very young that's very striking and yeah and I think also that can lend people to think you kind of feel buffeted sometimes by different demands that different departments have and you're always the last to know about something and that can be difficult Mm. and really something I got from the survey is that you have a lot more self-determination than you think yeah you're right. Yeah. You, there's more within your control than you think. And you're right. A lot of times it does, it, it's easy and it makes sense why we feel like, oh, it just is what it is. And there's a, but I have noticed those people who have kind of an Eeyore approach to it. If you, you know, ever huh. read Winnie the Aww. Pooh as a kid or with your kid. Who doesn't love Winnie the uh, Pooh? I still have a stuff or my daughter has a stuffed Eeyore that I had as a child. Yeah. And I have a whole book, you know, life according to anyway, that doesn't, isn't important, but you know what it is easy to be an Eeyore in this industry. It is easy to feel like there's not a lot in your control, but that's why the survey was so fascinating to us is that we were 
And that's what we hope that it will show is, well, who are the, you know, are there people that feel valued? Okay, well, what are they doing that I'm not? Are there, you know, people that are, you know, higher salary? Okay, what's different? You know, just all these different things, right? The, all the benchmarks that we went through to give you a starting place and to say, okay, this is something I can try. And, you know, there are going to be some companies that just aren't going to be receptive to it. But I would say, try to take a different approach and try to implement some of these things before just giving up on them altogether. Um, and if you I, had your EO moment, like yeah. especially in the last, I don't know, year or three, ha. don't don't feel terrible about that. It, it's it's big, quite a roller coaster for, for a lot of people. But but we hope that this shows you know great. right. Look at this, you know, like there are we we can move forward now. And can I mention the Japex thing in the, this context yes. also? Yeah, yes. This, this is also crazy to me. This was a surprise as well. This was not a good surprise. Yeah. So Carice was less shocked than I was um, <laughs> because of her very in-depth experience working with people in chargebacks and the many ways that they are dysfunctional about it. But I was shocked. 23% of respondents do not typically separate fraud chargebacks from other chargebacks. So especially if you're kind of having an period, please check whether you do in fact distinguish between types of chargebacks. And if not, that's a really great place to start because it's it's actually not very difficult. And mm. it's really very important in a number of ways. Uh, Carice, you're the expert, so I'm not going to try and explain across <laughs> you, but this was well, a very striking number to me. I know you were less shocked, but come on, even you were yeah. surprised. Yeah, I was. And I mean, if we had a group of, you know, 50 people in the room, then like 10 of them would not be doing this. That is pretty significant. I hmm. really, there's so many things that we wanted to cross-tabulate. We were restricted, you know, we would have cross-tabulated everything with everything else. And, you know, really, because I, I would love to know, are the people who don't separate their fraud chargebacks and their service chargebacks? Because this is about the same percent that don't even, you know, that have a pr approval rate, you know, under a certain amount. If you are not separating out your fraud chargebacks and your service chargebacks, then clearly it's not important to you to reduce your chargebacks. It's not important to you to find out why your customers, your good customers are calling their banks and asking for their money back. It's not important to you to find out what fraud are we missing. This is your feedback loop. I know I say that 8 million times, but it's just so true. And, you know, while we don't have one common you know, feedback loop for false positives, we do for chargebacks. And I will say that over the last, let's see, since 2011, so over the last 12 years, it has been much harder for e-commerce merchants to trust the fraud chargeback reason code. I can and I have gone off on that more times than I can count. I have even tried to hold the card brands accountable and asking them if this is on their roadmap to have, you know, reason code accountability on issue because we Spoiler. are seeing fraud reason code. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nope. They could have at least lied to me and told me it was. Nope. They didn't even try to do that. Nope. Don't care. The thing with that is like, but, yes, all of that's true. And that can lead you to the EO thing and that's, again, where you're like, well, right. how am I supposed to know anything? Well, but right. If that's it's where it's service chargebacks, it's for sure a service chargeback. Right. Cause that, that is that more difficult. So you need to know. Right. You need like those ones you don't want to be well, the solutions you have for these two types of chargebacks yes, right. lie in completely different places, different departments, different types of processes that you need to put in place. Most of the stuff for service chargebacks, yes, you can help. You can be very, very helpful, but it's not your system. Well, right. That's true, right? So, you know, what I was going to say. About this is really important. Well, right. Exactly. What, what I was mostly going to say about that piece is knowing that, yes, the fraud reason code is the catch all. And we can just say, okay, that is the way it is, whatever. I mean, I developed a process for a very large company 12, 13 years ago 
And I actually ended up having the person who managed it after me or who worked on it after me on the podcast last year, which was kind of fun. But I remember that. That was fun. It was fun for me. I was like, wow. Because they said, I thought every company did that. I'm like, no. Ultimate best practice is actually not only separating out your fraud and service chargebacks. That is the bare minimum that you should do because Shoshana said, they're two different root causes. And so if you want to ever, the best way to prevent future chargebacks is to understand your past and your current chargebacks, 1 million percent. And so because there will always be themes. If you are getting, you know, 10% of your chargebacks are all because a certain product is not described the right way on the website or, you know, customer service, it's really hard to find the customer service phone number or whatever that is. You are going to keep getting a large percentage of chargebacks for that reason. It might vary up and down, but you will always do that. So that's the first piece, right? Separating those out. Ultimate best practice is to have a, and I still think that the best way to do this is humans. There are companies I've worked with recently to be able to try to make these determinations on a more automated basis, but really to dive into your fraud reason codes to see which ones are first party and which ones are true fraud. And there's so many reasons for that. I feel like I've talked about that before in the episode. And also it's in the survey as well of why that's important. Because if you're looking at, if you're just counting any chargeback that was marked as fraud by the issuer, knowing that there really wasn't any standard for that, well, then you are going to have more false positives because especially if you know, that customer comes back or somebody related to that customer, or if you're using machine learning and they're trying to model off of those that you marked as fraud that really aren't, that can cause lots of problems. So yes, the ultimate best practice is to have someone looking at them, reverse engineer, basically reverse review it and figure out, you know, was this third party, was this first party? And then when it's third party fraud, you put it in your fraud model as soon as possible. When it's first party fraud, you respond to the chargeback and then you make decisions based on the outcome of that. But to your point, like you would think that this was normal, but again, like this isn't something so something something or this, yeah. like I've just been one of the only people saying these things over and over again. And I'm not exactly I haven't made it into a book like you did or you know what I mean? I can't expect. And the book listen. doesn't have that much on the charge rate management because O'Reilly were like, no, we're, we're doing fraud. Well, right. Although it's a, that would be a sensible companion. And but that, that actually is a really important point. We don't have trading materials. There is no industry standard. There is no course that you can take that's, you know, like the one where you can be like, all right, well, you're, you're done now. You have all the fundamental mm-hmm. basics. You can build some something that makes sense with all your, you know, your basic things ticked. There isn't one yet. There are a lots lot of helpful of things to get you, help you get right. there. And there's lots of on-the-job training, but it's hard. It is hard. But yeah, I think everyone knows these things, but we can say, hey, when you're looking at the survey and the majority of people are doing one thing and yeah. then you're reading what we say and you're like, hmm, okay, that why aren't we doing this? I would also say that there are some chargeback solution providers who do not think that this is important either. Quite frankly, a lot of them don't understand chargebacks the way that they should. Really, honestly, this is something you should be doing yourself. You shouldn't be relying on uh, on your service provider to provide that to you. There is at least one company I know that provides in-depth data that really, really helps with this, but the rest of them don't. So you have to calculate this yourself, but it's important. It's also the way that you know if what all the work that you're putting into fraud, is it actually working or not? Right. So something I want to say about this is I think this as well is actually also an opportunity because mm-hmm. yes we're saying 23% is really very high and mm-hmm. you know we could we could definitely get better at that by next year but the truth is if you're in the 23% or if you know that you're not because you do actually mm-hmm. separate fraud and service chargebacks but there mm-hmm. are lots of things that you know are missing and that you're slightly uncomfortable about that's a lot of money that you can make for your company 
without doing that much work, this is kind of lying in front of you as an opportunity. So, you know, take it. This this could be really good for you and the team and your perception in the company and also for the company because it's revenue. Oh, yeah. The process that I implemented for that company, you know, just to separate, we'd already separated fraud and products, but then within fraud, right? Separating that out. It easily saves that company 10 million a year. year Imagine if you walked in here. And I think it's been a lot more the bigger they grow, right? That was at the rate they were at 12 years ago. So they're much, much bigger now. I'm sure it's a lot more, right? And so imagine if you walked into leadership office and were like, okay. Yep. Well, also, why are we getting all these chargebacks? Well, I can tell you why, because we did root cause analysis, right? We had this many because of this marketing promo. It wasn't exactly explained the right way. We had this percentage because of this. We had that percentage because that. You can actually talk about the details of how you're losing money and then how you can stop that. And don't forget that not only are those chargebacks, you know, representing lost transaction amount and lost product or service, it's also lost that you're paying fees on them. And if your chargebacks are over a certain percentage, you're paying huge fines and fees on that. So just letting those chargebacks come through and just looking at a high level of how many chargebacks did we have and what's our rate is not enough. And that goes to kind of the theme of today, right? We can't just say, oh, that's the way it is. That's the way it's been. Like, Or, oh, as long as it's under this percent or it's over that percent, we're okay. We need to have that spark again, the energy again, to want to improve things a little bit more. And to your point, Jashana, like, you're right. That's a great way to tell your leadership. Like, look what I did with no extra resources. Mm-hmm. Guess what I did with more? I have had that conversation multiple times and it has worked. Sometimes I will say they're like, oh, well, good. So you can do even more with less. Like, well, no. Hey. But oh, we'll talk about that next episode. I, know. Yes. I was going to say, yeah, that is a funny next- thing. <laughs> Yeah, actually, you mentioned around, yeah, doing being expected to do more with less. We might have data that either proves you right or proves you wrong. Yeah, but I think this is that is a point, and in some ways, this is a challenging time to be working through those things. But I think it's also a time which is kind of ripe for the opportunity because yeah. something else that came up from the survey mm-hmm. was that the industry is shifting mm-hmm. in a way which is also aligned with the way e-commerce companies particularly are thinking about themselves also you know there's a a transitional state which reflects something that's happening in in the broader industry also and i think that actually makes this a good time to be having that conversation although where you are your where your specific company falls in this process Mm -hmm. and on the spectrum will impact how you feel about this but i think generally speaking this is actually a good time for it okay yeah do you want to explain this because i feel like you're you've actually been in the industry for almost all of this the the evolution through its stages tell me i'm old without saying i'm old i'm kidding but it's not that right like when you look at the data you're like oh wow this is such a baby industry with with such kids Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the fact that I'm considered a veteran and, you know, I'm not even 45 yet, that says something, right? Like, right. we are a young industry. But I've definitely seen, I've seen these three identifiable stages, but hadn't seen proof that the industry was going through these these steps until going through the, the survey results and really talking them out with you, which obviously, as identified in this episode, is so helpful to me. I am an external processor. So talking things out actually helps me learn and go, oh, Yeah, that's right. And listening as well. So I do try to listen just as much as I talk. So there seems to be three identical stages that I think each company goes through. But because Mm. each company is going through these stages, our industry goes through them too. 
And sometimes different companies go through them in packs like together. And I see yeah. this very clearly with the biggest companies, the ones that are the biggest targets, the ones that have the most to lose. They've kind of the data as well. 100%. That's what, yeah, that's exactly what I mean, right? Like when you look at the data by size of company based on annual revenue, you can see where they're at on this now because they're kind of doing it as a pack. But so essentially the three stages of a company, and this is as far as on their, their not just their appetite, but like their attitude towards fraud, right? And like mm, what yeah. important their priorities and your priorities are going to impact the outcome. So it's the whole cause and effect thing. I always say, I feel like fraud prevention is really all about cause and effect, right? Trying to figure out what was the cause to get this effect, but then also reverse engineering it to if we change this, how can we change the other? So, you know, the first one really is what I usually or used to call at least at conferences, the oh shit moment. So once a company mm. realizes, oh my gosh, or oh shit, we're losing so much money due to chargebacks. Like where is this? We're just bleeding money out, you know, up the back here basically, right? After the transactions done, after things like we need to get a hold of this. The pendulum swings to an really an exclusive emphasis on chargeback prevention. Right. So we just need to reduce as many chargebacks as possible. Most and that's when things like approval rates and false positives just don't, don't seem that relevant because you're right. so panicked. Right. hundred percent. Yep. And that's when you're trying to do everything you can to just prevent chargebacks. And now, granted, I really believe that just this back this backs up what we were just talking about. I believe that oftentimes when companies have chargeback problems, they're almost exclusively focused on fraud chargebacks and not service level chargebacks. Your chargeback rate is all of them, right? And I also would say that there are programs out there or different products out there that are promising to reduce chargeback volume. But at the end of the day, they're not, they're not actually reducing that loss. They're just reducing that charge. So and sometimes they cost way more than even makes sense to do, whether it's pre-dispute or post-dispute, that's a longer conversation. But just know that beware of snake oil salesmen that just say, oh, all you have to do is implement this product and you'll reduce your, not always the case. But so most companies, you know, have moved past this stage. Most enterprise level companies have moved past this stage, but the effects still linger and some are, you know, only just beginning to move away. So even if you are starting to look at wait, but how much good orders are we canceling? Really, really depends on what priorities in first place and which priorities in second place or which priority is tied for first. But I think always there's going to be one that's a little bit above. And it's the difference between if you're manually reviewing a transaction or you're thinking about your rules or your models or you know, what to feed. It's the difference between say, if we have an order that's on the fence that like genuinely our, our system or our analysts cannot figure out is this good? Is this bad? It looks bad, but it also looks good. And I'm not sure. Are we going to default to cancel it or are we going to default to approve it? That's why that priority matters. Because if you're going to default to cancel it, then chargeback prevention is your number one goal. And maybe it needs to be right. Mm -hmm. But if your chargeback rate is fairly low, but your approval rate is, you know, under 95, 96, 97, 86% or below 86% or 89%, then yeah you really, really need to bump up the approval rate and maybe put that in the front seat and say, hey, now on, like if we're on the fence about something, we're going to default to approve it and we'll approve it and we'll watch it. And if it gets, if we make this change and we see that the orders that we decided to let in turned into fraud chargebacks, well, then we're going to feed that into our model and we're going to change because at least we'll get a feedback loop, right? Like at least if we approve more orders, we'll, we'll get something back in theory. So 
you know, that's really the second piece, the second transition I've seen. And that was as an industry, I feel like that started maybe eight, nine years ago or so. Yeah. For the largest enterprise companies were like, oh, but wait, yes, we have low chargebacks now finally, but at what expense? I think it was like a little bit with machine learning. Yeah. Like, okay, oh, we can scale this more. This is, this is more feasible now. Like that, because that balance is very difficult. (laughs) True, true. Yes. It's a casual term. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. There are some that are just really like elevated reporting. So like you can't, yeah, but like actual, you know, real time, you know, all those different things that the, the best machine learning products in the industry, you're right. You're, you're trying to, to tailor surgical. like, yeah, like really surgical, but at scale. Yes. Yeah. And so you're looking at that and I would say medium, it really depends, right? I think the companies that have been fighting fraud the longest are going to be the biggest of the world and so they are going to be in the third phase but the companies that are kind of middle ground a lot of them are in this phase and then where we're seeing the industry and it became very clear in this survey from a analytical approach not just in conversations though I've seen this a lot too in speaking with the smartest people I know in fraud prevention for some of the biggest companies in the world and that is instead of just focusing on okay we need to balance between chargebacks and, and approval rates and those are our two things Now it's a broader view relating to the entire customer journey. We're looking at every piece end to end from the minute your customer enters your website to the end until after they get the product or service and are they going to dispute it with their bank. We're looking at every single piece. And I've had several episodes on this, most notably, you know, and I they're in the report too, but with Matt Vega and Sid Shaw from Novo.co, they had a good one about their strategy for customer experience. And my conversations with Nate Carl at Spec, like all these different ones. I mean, my recent conversations with Doriel from Forder, really talking about the overall, right? The customer journey. You know, how do we look at how they're interacting the entire time, not just take a snapshot at account login or at the transaction when they press checkout? And how can we make that better for them so that at the end of the day, it's a smoother process, right? The good customers, they yeah. we know that they're good and we're going to make them have the shortest, fastest journey possible. The ones that look risky, we're going to maybe put a couple of tripwires and what is the term that Matt used in the tripwires and landmines in place for that. <laughs> I love that. I love That's that term, Matt. right? But looking yeah. at the whole, their experience rather than just chargebacks and approval. That's really where we're seeing a lot of the big guys or the ones that are kind of leading the path and are leading the industry go. But if you're still in chargeback and approval rates, like maximize that first and then go to the entire journey. But I can tell you that your leadership, if you start talking in terms of the customer journey or the customer experience, their ears are going to perk out. Uh, yeah, perfect. they're already there. They're focused on that too, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Like it's I, it's really reflecting something that's already happening in the broader industry. And this is kind of fraud is catching up. But I think it's really, it is building on the second stage in that right. it's it's very easy to say, okay, entire customer journey. And you think of all of the different ways that you can catch fraudsters by looking bigger. And that obviously right. that is a part of it. And yeah, and for sure, fraudsters are also looking sure. at the entire customer journey. Yeah. And you have made, you had those really good episodes with Diana recently about mm. returns. From, yes, very much so the fraud perspective. But yeah. it really is also that balance of, okay, we are looking at the broader customer journey. And sometimes that means that we can make login absolutely seamless and we can make check out really easy because we can have one field that they fill in and then we're good and mm-hmm. you know being really part of that process across your company and across the customer journey like it really does play into that balance between chargebacks and approvals except now it's all types of fraud mitigation and all types of customer experience 
It's like the the next evolution. You're right. A hundred percent, right? Yeah, we're looking at, and to your point, yeah, we're not just looking at, is this going to be a charge rack? Is this going to be a It's the whole customer, everything, right? And we're trying to optimize that whole process and make it so that for the good customers, they don't even know that our department exists, right? But for the, you know, the ones with bad intentions, whether they're using a stolen credit card or not, now that we have refund fraud, I, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's, we need to be thinking about all those things. And it's invigorating, right? That's why we're passionate about it is I think the biggest point of these results and this report that will be out soon is to show you that there's better ways to give you a map, right? Of where to where you're going next, rather than constantly feeling reactive, giving you a map to say, hey, this is what your peers are doing. If you are doing that, then go tell your leadership, look, we get an A because we're right with them where we're in the top of the pack. If not, how can you get there? And we really tried to map that out so that we weren't just giving you numbers. We were sharing with you, how do we make that better? And that's one reason why we want to make it annual is I'm excited to see have any of these things changed year over year as we're you know starting to develop best practices and socialize them more. Because for sure, like three years ago, you would not have seen in the top four key primary responsibilities for fraud teams, you would not have seen three of them focused around post-checkout. We had refund claim right. fraud, post-transaction investigations collaboration with law enforcement and charge rate management. That would not have been the case three years ago. That's true. Yeah. Like refund fraud, three form of fraud attack, but 43% of respondents. That did not used to be the case. Right. No, but you're right. Yeah. Three years ago that, well, we didn't know it was a problem, right? I mean, I think Mm -hmm. it was starting to become a problem, but it was, it was never under our purview. It was within customer service. But now that we're like, okay, we're losing, we've gotten all these other things, but we're losing a lot of money this way. Like at the end of the day, the same result is the same as if you were getting a charge back. So let's identify this. Let's do, you know, and I really applied the same thing I applied to understanding friendly broad chargebacks for companies to refund broad. And that's how we got to the place that Diana and I are as far as being able to offer training and, you know, even having a, a solution come out very soon. So with that, I'm sure we're not surprised at all, but we had had high hopes to uh, possibly record both today's and Thursday's episode in the same time. It's not going to happen because we are 10 hours apart on our time zones. So we only have a small sliver of time each day that we can talk and we're both very busy and there's just a lot going on. But I am so grateful to you, Shoshana, for not just the survey and putting up with me and having to send so many WhatsApp messages to remind me and everything else, but also just for talking this out with me. I really, I'm so excited for this to get out into the world. I cannot wait. And it's I think everyone else is too. So hopefully by the time this episode comes out, we'll have an exact date on when that, when and how that report can be found. But you are going to come back for Thursday's episode and talk more about the best practices that came through on some of these things and the things that weren't surprising, but that validated our gut and that we really think will help listeners even more be able to communicate the importance of fraud to their business the the nuts and bolts the things that really sure. map yeah the approval yeah, you know, some of it get a little bit more approval and chargeback let's you know talk a little bit more about those things some of it i think is going to be a kind of just validating for everybody be like mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. i am experiencing this and i am not alone and i'm <laughs> i'm like i'm not crazy I, and this is really a yeah. thing and some of it's that and some of it is really like okay yes and and now i know and now what do i do about it and how do yes. i use it and yeah i'm i'm really happy with the way the surveys turned out in a lot of ways for for that reason. Me too. And like I said at the beginning, you and I both are not great at 
taking a moment to say we're proud of ourselves or that we feel like we really, you know, did something big. I mean, now granted, if everybody reads the survey and they're like, oh, this does not help me do my job better. And this is not, please do tell us you can burst our bubble. But I feel like the number of hours and conversations we had about every single detail and intention, that's what allows us to be able to be excited in sharing this information and to be certain about it. And hopefully be able to provide a roadmap, not just to the people who are doing this now, but to the people who are coming behind us and who are starting, you know, broad teams from scratch or are trying to catch up. There's a lot of them. And we'll actually talk about that next week. As far as tenure, we were kind of surprised at how it's a really young industry. Yeah, it's a really mm -hmm. young industry. It's younger than I even realized. I guess we probably should put that under surprises too, but we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> uh, and obviously, you know, us talking about this in greater detail is not going to do justice to you seeing the actual data and and data points and how they compare to your business in your size. So like I said, we will provide more. I will be providing more information as soon as that is downloadable. So thank you again, my dear, dear friend. And I look forward to talking with you even more of this on Thursday. Yay. So fun. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.